Well, tonight we're in uh, week two of our foundation series. We're learning about the doctrines of the Bible, what we believe. And uh, as Nathan mentioned, we had, we had toyed around with the idea of calling it Doctrine for Dummies. Um, I thought that might be offensive. Most of you voted for that title last Wednesday. I was really shocked. But we'll go ahead and call it Foundations. A little less condescending. But if you have your Bibles, will you turn to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is really the go-to passage when you're talking about God's Word and what we believe about God's Word. Because it really encapsulates um, the entirety of what we do believe about God's Word. And, and I was privileged to speak to the students a couple weeks ago. And I just entitled my lesson to them, The Bible is Awesome. And we came right to this passage of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we just walked right down this text, and I said, you know, the the Bible is the exhaled Word of God. It's God-breathed, every word, every phrase. The Bible is the explained way of God. It's profitable for this and that, and it equips us for the work of God. And, and just kind of talk to them about the Bible from the Bible. And I, I thought about doing that tonight and just saying, well, let's just, I'm just going to preach a message about the Bible from the Bible. Uh, and I think I'd get some amens maybe tonight because we're all Christians. We all love God's Word. You wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if you did not have some sort of an affinity for the Bible and believe what it says. But I feel like if you're anything like me, I grew up my whole life hearing phrases like, I believe the Bible is God's truth because the Bible says it's God's truth. And if the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Did you, did you hear stuff like that? And it was preached with authority and conviction, and I said, amen, just like you. And then I went out into the world, and I met people that didn't agree with me. And they had researched uh, the literature of the Bible and the history of the Bible, whereas I had not. And they were equipped where I was ill-equipped. And they would challenge what I believed about the Bible from the Bible, and it would really twist my mind, and I started to have doubts about the Bible. So because this is a doctrinal series, rather than marching through a text of Scripture about the Scriptures, I wanted to give you some objective support for why I do believe that the Bible is the truth of God. I'm going to give you six objective evidences uh, that, are, that are reasonable, uh, that, that can be argued, that are intellectually honest, and we're going to talk about those things, so it's going to be a little bit different than a sermon tonight. I'm going to give you those six object, object, objective supports uh, that the Bible is the truth of God's Word. And then the final um, evidence will be a subjective spiritual reason, like what I just said. I believe the Bible is the truth of God because the Bible says it's the truth of God. And if the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. Um, and so I'm going to just walk through a few objective truths about the truth of God's Word. Now... Before you start talking about truth, we have to answer this question. What is truth? It's like Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? Well, that sounds like a, a brainiac question. That's a deep philosophical question. You're, you're telling me we're going to solve it on a Wednesday night at 10 minutes to 6? Well, yeah, because really the, the answer is very simple. What is truth? Truth is this. Truth is what corresponds to reality. It's what corresponds to reality. Consequently, what is real is true. What is unreal is false. And the Bible makes some very distinctive truth claims. It claims, for instance, that God exists, that there is a God. In the beginning, God. It also claims that God has chosen to communicate with us 
through creation, our moral conscience, and His completed Word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the prophets, or to the fathers, through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. That's a truth claim. Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the only way for human beings to be saved, John 14, 6. And then also the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus found in the Bible are key to our Christian theology. So a lot of truth claims made in the Bible. And so those truth claims either uh, correlate to what is real, they correspond to reality, or they do not. I believe, and you also believe that they do. And so before I dive into these um, objective evidences, I want to give you an illustration why I'm using this approach. I could tell you tonight that I love my wife and my wife loves me. I love Don and Don loves me. Well, that's very subjective, isn't it? You might say to me, prove it. And so I would say, okay, well, I'm going to give you some objective um, evidences that support the fact that Don loves me and I love Don. I'm going to show you our marriage certificate. It is a secular document that is dated and signed by the officials showing that we were married. You say, well, that's not enough. Okay. I will gather some eyewitnesses that were there the day she said, I do. And they will all corroborate the story that we were married on a particular day, a particular time, and a particular place. You say, well, that's not enough. I need more. Okay. I will show you contracts of where we both had our names on that contract. Contracts where we purchased cars, homes, etc., in different places around the country to verify as evidence that we love one another. Well, it's, it's not enough. Okay, well, let's interview some eyewitnesses of our relationship. Let's pull them in and ask them questions. Do you think that Don loves Dave and Dave loves Don? Yes. Why? Well, here are some reasons. You see, we have objective evidences that support a subjective reality. The subjective thing is, I love Don, Don loves me. But we have all these kinds of objective truths that support that. And the same is true of the scriptural. The, the first evidence that I want to give you tonight is that we have physical evidence. Did you know that there's more evidence for the Bible's authenticity than for any other literature of antiquity? More supporting evidence for the Bible than any other ancient form of literature. In fact, the New Testament was written in the first century AD. It was all completed before the first century was over. And there are some 25,000 early manuscripts in existence. 25,000 early manuscripts in existence. And the Greek, there's some Greek texts, there's some other languages, there's some recognizable fragments that can be pieced together. But the earliest textual evidence that we have was copied not long after the original, all within that first century. That's amazing support. It's physical evidence. You can look at it, you can touch it. For, for a brief time, the seminary had uh, some fragments of Scripture, some original Scripture. There's a museum now in, in Washington, D.C., the Museum of the Bible. You can see actual manuscript uh, parchment paper of the original text. In contrast, some secular literature you may or may not have heard of, uh, but things that are regularly read and agreed upon as true. Caesar's Gallic Wars was written in the first century B.C., but there are only ten manuscripts of that document. And the earliest uh, evidence that, uh, of something that was copied from that happened a thousand years after the original. One thousand years after the original was written. 
Aristotle's Poetics was written in the 4th century B.C., but there are only five manuscripts. And with the Bible, we have 25,000 early manuscripts in existence. The physical evidence is astounding. In fact, if you were to set out to study some of the ancient writings of men like Homer, Plato, Aristotle, you could probably fill a filing cabinet with their original writings. But if you were to do the same thing with the scriptures, you'd need a couple storage rooms to house the manuscripts. The evidence is overwhelming. That's the physical evidence. And then there's the question of, the question of well, how do we get the canon of the scriptures, the, the books that are contained in our Bibles today? Well, by the time, um, th- this question really only relates to the New Testament because by the time of Christ, the Old Testament was already accepted and codified in the books uh, that, that are assembled there by the Jewish people uh, as divinely inspired. But after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the early church um, started receiving letters. Letters were being transferred. Gospels were being written. And at the time of persecution, they, it became important to them which letters are really inspired. What am I willing to die for? You know, is, is this letter from Thomas real? <laughs> or what about this gospel? Is it legitimate? Because I, I only want to die for it if it's, if it's true, if it really verifies uh, what we truly believe. And so there was a process. And the word canon uh, means a measuring reader standard by which something is measured. So in reference to the Bible, the canon has to do with genuine inspired writings, writings from God. And so the church was pretty methodical uh, in reference to the New Testament canon. So this whole process started very early on. Some of the New Testament books were being recognized um, very early. Paul considered Luke's writings to be authoritative, as authoritative as the Old Testament. He references them uh, many times. Peter recognized Paul's writings as Scripture. So you have a disciple of Christ recognizing uh, a disciple born out of due time. Paul, writing much later, he was verifying his writings as inspired. A little bit later on, Clement of Rome mentioned at least eight New Testament books. That's A.D. 95. Ignatius of Antioch acknowledged about seven books. A little bit later, Polycarp a disciple of John the Apostle, acknowledged 15 more. Uh, later, I- Irenaeus mentioned 21 books. And by the time the church was forming, the Council of Hippo met as churches gathered in AD 393, and also the Council of Carthage, AD 397. They affirmed the same 27 New Testament books as authoritative and inspired by God. And they had a process. I just want to summarize it for you real quick, and then we'll move on. Uh, The principles to determine whether a New Testament book was truly inspired by the Holy Spirit was, number one, was the author an apostle or did he have a close connection with an apostle? Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Is it regularly agreed upon as a whole within the church? Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? Number four, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? And if it met some of those criteria, then it was considered to be a canon of Scripture. It met the measuring rod of inspiration by God. Of course, our Bibles are different than Catholic Bibles. Does anybody know why? What what does the Catholic Bible contain that our Bible does not contain? Apocrypha. Okay, some good Catholics out there. The Apocrypha. Well, after the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Protestants removed the Apocryphal books for two two main reasons. Number one, the Apocryphal books were never really accepted by the Jewish people as inspired by God along with the Old Testament. 
the Jewish people that had already canonized the Old Testament never acknowledged the Apocrypha as inspired by God. Number two, they're never referenced or confirmed by any of the other New Testament books that were deemed inspired by God. So they're not inspired scripture. So the Protestants uh, since removed them. But I believe based on the physical documentation, uh, the process of canonization, the faithful uh, transference of the scriptures to us, that the Bible is true and reliable because of physical evidence. So that's physical. Next we see that we have some personal evidence, and I would just write out to the side eyewitnesses. The events recorded in the New Testament could be verified by those that were still living. Do you remember the original documents were compiled within a century? And so there's some people that were around that are eyewitnesses, like folks that attended our wedding, for example. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying to the church, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And in verse 5 he says, And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Some have fallen asleep, but a greater part remain. He was saying, basically, if you want to check the facts, go ask the people. They were still alive. So someone could show up and say, yeah, I was at Dave and Don's wedding. She was a beautiful bride in white. David was wearing a tux. It was in a small church in Virginia. And I'll never forget it. Halfway through the, seminar, or halfway through the ceremony, a giant purple gorilla ran right down the middle of the aisle. He said a few words, and then he left. Well, that's what I would call a false gospel. How will we know that that was false? We just talked to the eyewitnesses. You talked to two or three people that were also at the wedding, and they said, that did not happen. Did a big purple monkey come in while Dave and Don were getting married? No, that didn't happen. Well, then that's a false gospel. The same thing happened uh, to many of the books of the Bible. False gospels would arise, and then it would be pushed down by eyewitnesses of the actual event. This is a false gospel, and they would shut it down. There were eyewitnesses that could verify the truth of Scripture. Um, Jesus and the apostles also, by the way, had a very public ministry. Uh, they engaged the leadership in the regions where they were on a regular basis. There's records, there's, there's eyewitnesses, there's personal accounts. You could just interview them and they would verify what is recorded in Scripture. Let's move on to number three. There's more that could be said there with personal evidence, but let's go to historical evidence. I'm going to read a paragraph that's just small to you tonight, and then later I'll reveal its source. But listen to this. John, that was called the Baptist, was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness toward one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John, a prisoner, out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Anybody know what book of the Bible I got that passage about John the Baptist from? It's not a book of the Bible at all. It's a historical, a secular historical account of a man and the ministry of John the Baptist. It's from Josephus, a secular historian. There are dozens of writings outside the Bible in the records of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans that verify the historical accuracy of the Bible's records 
of different persons, places, and events all throughout the Bible. These extra-biblical writings have helped corroborate the existence of some 50 people mentioned in the Old Testament, more than 30 people written about in the New Testament. And they help verify certain details surrounding the life of Jesus. Uh, One of the most prominent, his name is Josephus. There are others, um, for example, um, uh, Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus, Gaius Suetonius, and I know these names are really interesting to you, the chief secretary of the Roman Emperor Hadrian, Pliny the Younger, all secular historians that affirm and prove what happened in the Bible. In other words, their accounts run parallel to the accounts of Scripture. Uh, One of the things that Josephus wrote about Jesus himself, he said, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Isn't that interesting? A secular historian confirming what we know about Christ. We know it from the Scriptures. They know it because it really happened. Jesus was a real man who lived and died and rose from the dead. And his disciples continued to follow him after he was crucified, saying that he had risen from the dead and appeared to them. And so secular historians confirming the Bible and objective evidence. So we have, so far we have physical, personal, historical evidence. Look at number four. We also have archaeological evidence. From the book of Genesis to the life of Jesus to the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, archaeological findings support the truth of Scriptures. Don't get the idea that archaeologists are out to prove the Bible. They are not. But while they're digging, they often prove the Bible. Okay? I'm just going to give you three examples of archaeology affirming the Bible. One prominent example was the existence of a group of people called the Hittites. Anybody heard about this archaeological discovery? It's pretty old. But Genesis 23 reports that Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased from Ephron the Hittite. 2 Samuel 11 tells of David's adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so here we see Hittites in the Scripture. Well, a century ago, historians and archaeologists would mock the Bible because they would say there are no such people. There is no such civilization as the Hittites. So the Bible is false. It's fairy tales. There are no Hittites. However, in 1906, archaeologists digging east of Ankara, Turkey, discovered the ruins of Hattusas, the ancient Hittite capital, as well as a vast collection of Hittite historical records which showed an empire flourishing in the mid-second millennium B.C. Guess what? There are Hittites. Sometimes people don't believe, but they just haven't caught up to the Bible yet. And so there were Hittites, and it was proven by archaeologists. The second example is in the late 1800s, the secular scholar Dr. S.R. Driver ridiculed the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. 
He said, in the time which Moses supposedly lived on the earth, men didn't know how to write. So how could he have written the Pentateuch? And so for a while, many people mocked the Bible. Again, the Bible's full of fairy tales. It's not possible until in northern Egypt, a lady was digging in her garden when she came across some clay tablets. They were called the Tel El Amarna tablets and were tablets used for correspondence. They were written from people in Egypt to people in Palestine centuries before Moses was born. Not only did people know how to write, they had a postal system where they would send clay tablets as letters to each other in correspondence hundreds of years before Moses was born. Yet again, people caught up to the Bible. Just one more example, and then we'll move on to number five. Do you remember the story in the book of Daniel about King Belshazzar seeing God right on the wall during his sinful uh, feast? Well, for a long time, secular scholars said it never happened because they know from ancient Babylonian records that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon. Babylonian history says Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. But one day, the shovel of an archaeologist uncovered a cylinder, and sure enough, the official name on the clay cylinder was Belshazzar. More records were uncovered that showed that Nabonidus was indeed the last king of Babylon, but they also discovered that his son Belshazzar was co-ruler with him. They ruled together, father, son, king. Nabonidus was a big game hunter and was often gone from the kingdom. Who ruled in his absence? Belshazzar. And this makes a lot of sense because in Daniel 5.16, Belshazzar says to Daniel, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Well, why can't I be the second ruler in the kingdom? Because I'm the second ruler in the kingdom and dad's number one. It's Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Daniel, I'll make you number three. Doesn't it make sense? Archaeologists can catch up with the Bible. Now, had the archaeologists never made those discoveries, would the Bible be any less true? No. No. Archaeology is not greater than the Scriptures, but sometimes people just need to catch up to the Bible. Adrian Rogers uh, used to say, anytime a scientist or archaeologist agrees with the Bible, it should not give us more faith in the Bible, it should give us more faith in the archaeologist and the scientist. That's number four. Let's look at number five. We also have scientific evidence. And I'll zip through some of these for the sake of time. But long, long ago, when all other people and all other sources declared that the earth sat on the back of an elephant or a turtle or was held up by a man named Atlas, probably resembled me a little bit, uh, the Bible alone, the Bible alone states what we now know to be true, that the earth free floats in space affected only by gravity. And Job 26.7 says he hangs the earth on nothing. Long before telescopes, long before astronomy, he hangs the earth on nothing. For centuries, people naively washed in standing water. When they dealt with disease, uh, their clothes and their body, they would wash in standing water, and it would just perpetuate the problem. They didn't understand that one's clothes and body should be washed under running water. But Leviticus 15, 13 tells us that. Today we recognize the need to wash away germs with fresh water rather than standing water. Leviticus was way ahead of us there in 15, 13. 
At a time when many thought the earth was flat, the Bible told us that the earth is spherical in shape. Isaiah 40, 22, the earth is a sphere. He sits above the circumference of the earth. The Bible's way ahead of science. Uh, evolution teaches that we all evolve from a common ancestor, yet offers no mechanism to explain the origin of one of the thousands of diverse languages in existence today. Origin of the major languages uh, are explained in Genesis 11. After the rebellion at Babel, God scattered the people and he confused the language. Over and over again, science catches up with the Bible. One last one. Um, during the 20th century, most scientists, including Albert Einstein, believed the universe was static. It just stayed put. There was no movement in the universe. Others believed it should have collapsed, or it should collapse due to gravity. But in 1929, astronomer Edwin Hubble showed that distant galaxies were receding from the Earth, and the further away they were, the faster they were moving, that the universe is slowly expanding. Well, in at least five places in Scripture, God declares that he stretches out the heavens. Stretching out the heavens. It's moving away. It's always stretching out. It's always spreading out. Science again catches up with the Bible. Uh, I'm going to share one more because I love science. Um, light can be divided. Isaac Newton studied light and discovered that white light is made up of seven colors which can be parted and then recombined. Science confirmed that 400 years ago. God declared it 4,000 years ago in Job 38, 24. That he parts the light. Awesome. Anyway, this is a great study. If you want, you can uh, look up how science proves the Bible. I, I got to give you one more because I love this. Our bodies are made up from the dust of the ground. You know, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed in him the breath of life. That's Genesis 2 7, chapter 3 19. Did you know that scientists have discovered? that the human body is comprised of some 28 base and trace elements, all of which are found in the earth? So compared to God, we're dumb as dirt. Dumb as dirt. You're dirty, I am too. So many other things we could talk about under scientific evidence, but let's move on to number six. We have prophetic evidence. Prophetic evidence. Now, you may say, well, this is subjective, this is spiritual, this is for Christians only. No, when someone predicts that something's going to happen and then that thing happens and is verified by objective witnesses, that's an objective support. Wouldn't you say? That's evidence. That's evidence. And so prophetic evidence is really an objective support to the fact that God's Word is the truth of God. And so God used prophets to speak and write down his word. Then God used miracles like the fulfilling of prophecy to authenticate his messengers and also his word. There are more than 3,200 prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled. And another 3,100 prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. And there are so many prophecies concerning Jesus alone, around 300 uh, that we wouldn't have time to cover all of them, but think about it. His birth was predicted hundreds of years before he was born. Not just the fact that he would be born, but where he would be born. Can you control where you're born? They say, oh, well, this guy, Jesus, he knew all those Old Testament prophecies, and then he rigged his life to fulfill those prophecies. Can you rig where you're born? I don't think so. 
not only that he would be born, but the place of his birth, uh, the, the, the mode of his death, before it was even commonplace, that he would be crucified, which was a Roman practice, and Rome was not even in power at the time. Not only that, but that he would be crucified between two thieves. You could go on and on about the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus alone. Um, some math genius kind of figured out the odds. And he said, the odds of one man accidentally fulfilling even 16 of the around 300 prophecies regarding Christ are 1 in 10 to the 45th power. That's insane. How many is that? Well, for comparison, there are less than 10 to the 82nd power atoms in the entire universe. That's a lot. It's a lot of zeros. I would like to take whatever my salary is a year and add to the 45th power, wouldn't you? Jesus fulfilled far more prophecies personally in himself than that. That's amazing. We have incredible prophetic evidence. And that is a fact that is not easily ignored. Jesus even predicted that after his death, he would raise from the dead in three days. And he did it. No body was ever produced. No story. Stories were made up. People were paid off, but no body was produced. Prophetic evidence. It's huge. And these are all objective proofs that the Bible is the truth of God. It's a supernatural book. Now let's talk about the obvious, which is the spiritual evidence. And we heard a little bit about that tonight. Changed lives. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. A supernatural evidence and support that the Bible is the truth of God is that it is a book that changes lives. It transforms lives. The Bible is the only book that you can read that reads you instead. The Bible says of itself that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the immaterial parts of man. It can separate us and read us like a book. The Bible changes lives. Without the Bible giving us the truth, we wouldn't know that there was a God to glorify with our lives. We wouldn't have the record of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't see the promise of the coming King and Him setting up His kingdom and the fulfillment of that. We wouldn't understand the work of the Holy Spirit or the wonderful gift that we have in the church, which is His body, the faith family that we have. There's incredible spiritual proof, spiritual evidence in your life and in my life. That the Bible is God's truth. Quickly, just some fun facts about the Bible. You know, it contains, it's not just one book, it's 66 books, made up of 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And they were written by at least 40 different authors. And when I say different, I mean different. They came from different places, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were soldiers, princes, fishermen, scholars, professionals, common laborers. They were from 13 different countries on three different continents over the course of 1,600 years. Yet when you take the Bible as a whole, it has one theme, the redemption of man. It has one hero, Jesus Christ, one villain, Satan, and one purpose, the glory of God. It's a miracle book, the Bible. The Bible says more than 3,000 times, thus says the Lord. It's been translated into 1,200 languages. 
And that continues. It has sold more copies than the next top ten selling books combined of all time. The Bible's not the book of the month. It's the book of the ages. I would add a number eight if you're taking notes. There's some survival evidence. You don't have that in the notes, but there's some survival evidence. The book has been subjected to more abuse, perversion, destructive criticism, and pure hate than any other book that has ever existed. Ken Boa says, yet the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. It continues to stand the test of time while its critics are refuted and forgotten. French uh, philosopher Voltaire once said, A hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. But a hundred years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society set up its headquarters in Voltaire's home in Geneva, Switzerland, for the purpose of printing Bibles. I love that. Arthur W. Pink wrote this incredible paragraph about the survivability of the Bible. He says this, Now suppose there was a man who had lived upon this earth for 1,800 years, that this man had oftentimes been thrown into the sea and yet could not be drowned, that he had frequently been cast before wild beasts who were unable to devour him, that he had many times been made to drink deadly poisons which never did him any harm, that he had often been bound in iron chains and locked in prison dungeons, dungeons, yet he had always been able to throw off the chains and escape from his captivity, that he had repeatedly been hanged till all his enemies thought him dead, yet when his body was cut down, he sprang to his feet and walked away as though nothing had happened, that hundreds of times he had been burned at the stake till there seemed to be nothing left of him, yet as soon as the fires were out, he leaped up from the ashes as well and as vigorous as ever, but we need not expand this idea any further. Such a man would be superhuman." A miracle of miracles, yet this is exactly how we should regard the Bible. This is practically the way in which the Bible has been treated. It has been burned, drowned, chained, put in prison, torn to pieces, yet never destroyed. It remains. A great evidence for the Word of God is the survivability, the survival of the Bible. Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. The Bible will outlast the earth we live on, the sky we live under. It is the eternal Word of God. Well, this supporting evidence, most of it objective, by the way, should lead us to do three things real quickly in application before we close. Number one, we should love the Bible. Love it. Nothing in your possession compares with the Bible. Nothing. Listen, I love my smartphone. It's got a camera on it. It's got a video camera on it. I can find places I've never been to with my GPS. I can explore the Internet and find answers to questions. I can connect to all of my loved ones. I can even see their face when I speak to them. I love my phone until the new one comes out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Our phone is awesome. Until the new one comes out, and then we hate our old phone. I hate this old phone. I have three teenage daughters. 80% of the time, they're telling me why they need a new phone. The other 20% of the time, they're complaining about their used car. But 80% of the time, they're talking about, I need an upgrade, Dad. My phone. Oh, my phone. You never have that with the Bible. God's Word, it doesn't change. It will be here when we're long gone. We should love it the most. 
Psalm 19, 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Get this, verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, much more than fine gold. Somebody wheeled up a big truckload of gold and said, do you want this or do you want your Bible? Choose the Bible. It's worth more. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Bible is the complete, compelling, compassionate word of God. All the things that you love here on earth will pass away, but the Bible will remain forever. It is a treasure that we should love. It is also, number two, a truth that we should learn. We should learn the Bible. Love the Bible. Learn the Bible. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The Bible is food for your soul. It's food for your soul. It's sustenance for the Christian. You might say, well, Dave, I've never been to seminary. I haven't been to Bible college. I don't know how to learn the Bible. That's a lie from the devil. The Holy Spirit of God that guides us into all truth dwells in you. Open your word and pray to the God of the word. Say, God, reveal yourself to me in your word. Guide me into all truth. Every day as you read your Bible, just ask a couple questions. Say, what? What does this mean? So what? Why does this matter? And now what? How can I apply this to my life? What? So what? Now what? Jeremiah 15, 16, the prophet said, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. We are blessed when we learn the word of God. Psalm 1, 1 through 6, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We should learn the Bible, love the Bible, learn the Bible. Finally, number three, we should live the Bible. Our transformation from God's word comes with application of the information. You can learn all all you want about the Bible and gather up a bunch of information and even be emotionally charged up about it, but if there is no application of that information, you will not experience transformation. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If you do according to all that is written in it. Psalm 119, 33 through 40, David said, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commands, for I delight in it. We have to do what the Bible says. We need to love it, learn it, live it. 
Guys, listen, I believe that God wrote a book, and I believe that we hold it in our hands tonight. I believe that with all my heart. Not just because of a subjective spiritual experience, but because I believe there are objective evidences out there that support and validate the truth of Scripture. God wrote a book. May we not be content to merely hold it in our hands. Help us to hide it in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And Lord, we know that there are many proofs in the Scripture about the Scripture, and we believe them wholeheartedly. We believe that every word is inspired, every phrase is inspired, that it's profitable for doctrine, everything that we need to know, and and for reproof, and for correction, and instruction, and righteousness. Lord, your word makes us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Help us to not only love the Bible and learn it diligently, Lord, help us to live it. Lord, we understand tonight that those that don't know you, the only Bible they ever read are the lives of Bible-believing Christians. That's sobering. So, Lord, help us to take what we know, hide it in our heart, and apply it to our lives tonight for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.